You're listening to the White Coat Podcast, presented by Georgia South Graduate Medical Education. I'm so happy to be here today with Dr. Marla Golden. How are you? I'm fine, thank you. Among many notable things, Dr. Golden is the Associate Dean of Clinical Education at PCOM Georgia and South Georgia. That is the Philadelphia College of Osteopathic Medicine. And we're here to discuss all things clerkships and fourth-year rotations. But before we pull off on that exit, why don't you take a moment, Dr. Golden, to share your path to medicine. Throughout your journey, did you always know you'd end up where you are today? Somewhere deep inside, I knew that I would end up in medicine. At this place in medicine, no. Um, I was inspired as a very young child when my brother died, actually, um, of leukemia. And of course, I declared that I would find the cure for leukemia, not realizing what that might entail, but then had various different experiences throughout my life with my own health and problems, including having encephalitis as an 11-year-old. And coming out of that very riveting and painful experience, I felt terrible about that. And my mother worked with me for several months, always orienting me to the fact that I didn't die. And because I did live, I also wasn't in the other bad place that they said I might end up in, which was not being able to walk or talk or know the people around me. And so um, being a very inspired and intuitive mother who had no training in medicine, she worked with me to bring me back to rebuild my brain and It was at that time when I came out of the hospital that my lifelong childhood friends said, what do you want to be when you grow up? And we had asked each other that so many times throughout our lifetime, you know, our our ripe long life of 11 years at that point. But I looked at her and I said, I always wanted to sing and dance. Um, And I still do. I'm glad I'm not doing that professionally, but I did look at her and I said, I always wanted to sing and dance, but I think um, God saved my brain and I think I'm supposed to use it. And so whatever I do, I'm going to use my brain because I was, you know, given that gift and um, it wasn't taken from me. And so it went. I loved science and math. I wasn't sure what I wanted to do with it, but I did love it. I majored in chemistry. I minored in biology and math in college. And I thought about medical school, and I thought about the pre-med students, and I thought, "Mm, probably not going that route. So I pursued a career in chemistry, but I didn't like the jobs were out there for a bachelor's degree in chemistry. And so I went to graduate school and I got a master's and I looked at jobs for chemistry careers and I didn't like the jobs that were out there. And I didn't like the fact that every employer wanted me to sign away my brain, meaning that there were clauses in contracts that said, whatever you do or discover is ours. But more importantly, um, as I launched into working on my PhD and being a full-fledged PhD candidate, I realized that I love the science, I love chemistry, I loved all science and math, but there was something really big missing for me. And I think all the while I had been trying to push, push off that career in medicine because I think somewhere deep inside I knew that it would 
it would be a big part of my life if I made that mm -hmm. decision that I would spend most of my time and energy in that career. But it got to the point where I was so unsettled, I just knew I had to, I had to make the change. And lo and behold, I was in a car accident and I couldn't do my chemistry experiments with dangerous chemicals with utilizing any medications. And my physician sent me to an osteopathic physician. He also sent me to uh, a physician at the University of Pennsylvania who still practiced traditional Chinese medicine and mm -hmm. did acupuncture. But when I went to the osteopathic physician and he was able to work on my neck and my shoulders and my head and relieve my pain without any medications, I was thrilled, obviously, and it really put me on the path of looking into osteopathic medicine. The physician who practiced Chinese medicine opened my eyes to the fact that there were so many other modalities and systems of healing that we should be open to. And in the osteopathic world, as I started to explore it, I realized that within that paradigm, uh, there was an, an understanding of that or an openness towards that. Uh, so I decided that I was going to apply to PCOM, our main campus in Philadelphia. And honestly, it was right where I was supposed to be. Mm -hmm. Isn't life so interesting? It is. No matter how much you try, you really can't run away from your calling. It just keeps knocking on the door. And if you move, it finds your new address. It'll come and get you. Absolutely. Absolutely true for me. So I went to med school thinking I would do hematology, oncology, and pursue that career. And I was very good at it in a lot of ways, but it was too close. It was too close for me. And so I was having a bit of a crisis thinking, well, what do I do now? You know, what will I do? What will my life's work be? I thought all my life I would do this, and it's not working out that way. And it's not to say that I couldn't have done an internal medicine residency and pursued that career, but there was something that just, it just wasn't, you know, it wasn't where I needed to be or realized that I could be mm -hmm. or operate in the best way. Um, so I looked at a lot of different fields. I ruled them out during my third year rotations, some of them quicker than others. And I got to my fourth year and realized that in the emergency department, I could see a lot of things and manage a lot of things. And so what I might not have liked about office-based pediatrics wasn't there, but I still got to treat pediatric patients. And so the array of patients and the, I will say, the immediate gratification in so many instances of being able to intervene and relieve people's suffering like almost immediately was very appealing to me. It was excellent training, so that's what I decided to do. I went into emergency medicine and excellent training. I think every doctor should do a bunch of emergency medicine because it teaches you to think very methodically and to approach problems in a very certain way that I think serves the patients well. Mm -hmm. Well, that's the perfect segue to our topic today. Okay. Third and fourth year in medical school. What are clerkships? What are they all about? When do they start in medical school? What does a first year need to know? that they need to pace themselves because there's a lot of material and it's a lot of work. Um, no one would misrepresent that. Anyone in medicine will tell you, but isn't anything 
a lot of work if you're really devoting yourself to it. But in this case, they can be thinking about specialties that they might want to do, but they shouldn't get hung up on that. Because as you could see, um, you know, I went into medicine thinking I would do one thing, went into another thing, practiced it for a while, and then went into something completely different um, as, as a specialty. But to answer that first part of the question, in our school and in most schools, the uh, first two years are didactic or, you know, at the campus or mm -hmm. campus-based. Academic year goes from August to May, and then in June or July, they move into their third year. Third year is really um, a time for discernment. Even if you think you've always wanted to be something, you will be exposed to every core specialty and you'll hear, you'll hear them described as either clerkships or rotations. That's synonymous, mm -hmm. uh, synonymous terms there. And at PCOM, they're four-week rotations, but they're in OBGYN, pediatric, surgery, family medicine, internal medicine, psychiatry. And they do get the chance to do some subspecialty rotations as well. And that year is to establish foundational skills of working with patients taking a history, doing a physical, learning how to like actually do that examination and then put it into writing, well, an electronic medical record now, but recording the findings because that's really how we communicate. Fourth year is more about what do you really want to pursue? So students will put themselves out there on what we call audition rotations in hospitals where they have various residency programs and they will be there to see if it's a good fit. Do I want to do psychiatry at Colquitt Regional? Well, let me go do a rotation, an audition rotation with them. Those program directors get to see me and how I work. I get to see how they work. And it really is about fit. Um, and from there, then they apply to residencies and they do a rank order, and they go into what's called a match system. And hopefully they end up right where they're supposed to be, which I am a firm believer in. Yeah. Do you find that it's a tough transition from second year to those third-year clerkships? It's a big transition. I actually have been thinking about this a lot lately because in first and second year, students are busy. They're very busy, and they have a big hurdle to jump over. At the end of second year, which is either if you're an allopathic student and at an MD school, you take USMLE step one of the boards. At an osteopathic institution, you take what's called COMLEX one. And, and it's uh, a bit of a sticking point for students, you know, and they get a little bit stuck there. But more importantly, what happens is they can't devote a lot of time to understanding what they need to do to move through that transition to be ready and to jump into the clinical years. And so I use the analogy today of a, a sprint triathlon. Mm -hmm. And um, we're very good at compartmentalizing. You're going to swim. You're going to bicycle. You're going to run. If you've ever done one, you know that the transition points are called bricks. And that's because mm -hmm. it's like a a rapid deceleration. It's it's a big change mm -hmm. in a short amount of time. And the same thing happens for students between second and third year. I think it happens maybe to a lesser degree between third and fourth year, but it's still a whole new world to jump into that fourth year where this is real now. 
I'm choosing a specialty and I'm really targeting these residency programs. So I think we need to spend more time thinking about those transition zones and bridging that gap because it is a big change. Mm -hmm. As a medical student's going through these clerkships, maybe they have an idea when they begin medical school what they'd like to become, which residency, which specialty they like to pursue. How open should someone be on each of these clinical rotations in their third year? They should be completely open because you just don't know if you haven't been exposed to it. And I think that their interest should be in that specialty. Whatever that specialty of the month is, your interest should be there. And even if you quickly decide that it's really not the specialty for you, there's always something to learn and apply to whatever else it is that you will pursue. Mm -hmm. But to be open to that is probably the best thing that anybody can do. That openness allows you to learn as much as you possibly can. It makes a preceptor, the doctor who's working with you, want to teach you and want to teach you more and enjoy teaching you. Everybody wants to you know, help you understand what you want to be when you grow up as a physician. And so being open really does open a lot of doors and they're not just academic or what pertains to that specialty. What challenges should someone expect, especially first starting off in their clerkships? You talked about the brick earlier. What's that first brick they hit? I think there's um, some trepidation about their own skill set and knowing what to do, being nervous about not knowing everything. And of course, no one expects you to, but I think their uh, students feel like they should of course, know things, and so they're afraid to ask questions, especially when it comes to their skill set. I also think there's a bit of a gap as they look at clinicians. They don't see them the same way as professors, and they might just feel like um, nervous about talking to them and asking mm -hmm. them questions, whether it's about how should I behave in the OR, or I don't know how to hold that retractor in the OR. You know, it could be it could be a, a procedural question or it could be an academic question, but not realizing that um, preceptors are people yeah, and they're there to teach you. And so I think those things um, kind of hang students up and I we remind them they're people. They want you to ask them questions and they want you to be interested and they want you to be involved. And it's better to ask than to do the wrong thing Mm -hmm. You know, or to not do it at all, which is really the tragedy, to take that um, opportunity out from under yourself. Mm -hmm. The other thing I think um, that, that changes is the, the work of the day. It's a different environment, mm -hmm. much more active, You're not passively sitting at your desk and reviewing information in that way. You're walking around, you're interacting with patients, your patients, those hospitals or offices, they become your campus, they become your textbooks, they become your subject matter. And so um, not understanding, I think that uh, your workday will be very different. Mm -hmm. And it might be longer because when you're studying as a student in your first and second year, you can 
decide if you're going to take a break here or there. And a clinical day doesn't often allow you to do that when you want to. Certainly, we work hard to try to help students and residents get the breaks that they need, but they're not necessarily your choice. Yeah, They're yeah. dictated by the patient and the flow of either the clinic or what's happening in the hospital. The concept of imposter syndrome is very popular today. Do you think that really sets in third year or before that, after that? you think a lot of medical students have trouble with that during clerkship rotations? I'm not sure I can answer that. I, I personally always knew where I was in terms of my training and what my skill set was and where I fit into the big picture. So if I was a third-year medical student, I couldn't be an imposter because I was a third-year medical yeah. student, and I only knew what I knew. It wasn't until much later in my career, and even sometimes now that I scratch my head and I think, wow, did I really do that? You know, because, and I, and I think, well, yes, I did, but I didn't think of it at the moment. Like, I never felt like I wasn't doing what I knew how to do at every level. So I... I don't know how to really understand that as well as I think I could or should and how people find themselves in that place. I mean, sure, sometimes we're standing there thinking, I don't really know what I'm supposed to do next. doesn't make you an imposter. It just makes you a learner. And we're lifelong learners. Mm -hmm. And so I'm not sure if that answers your question. No, that's a powerful way to think about it in a mindset because... If you think about the crux of imposter syndrome, you think you're someplace you're not supposed to be, but maybe you are where you're supposed to be. You're a third-year medical student. You're a first-year medical student. Things are difficult because you haven't been here before, and what you've done has gotten you here, but it won't continue to move you forward. There's another level of education you have to pursue, um, another level of reaching out and seeking support and mentorship that you have to pursue. So I think that's a great concept. And there's so much to learn. You know, when you become, you enter medical school, you're a student doctor. You're not a doctor. There are things that you couldn't possibly know and you shouldn't have to worry about until you get to that phase of your training. Mm -hmm. So yes, I would say that um, students just need to kind of take it one step at a time and recognize where they are and I think it makes it easier almost to not be so hard on yourself you know you no one expects you to know what a third-year student knows no one expects you to know as a third-year student what a resident knows no one expects a first-year resident to know what a seasoned physician knows so if you if everyone just kind of realizes their place Mm -hmm. they'll be okay. Now, how is fourth year different from third year? So fourth year is different from third year because you're more autonomous. You're taking charge of your destiny, so to speak, by looking for those audition rotations in those residency programs, by finding electives in specialties of interest, whether it's the one you want to do your residency in or rotations where you think it will support you 
in the residency that you're going into. So that if you know you want to be a dermatologist and you're going after a dermatology residency, then you might do some additional surgical electives. So really looking at and planning a more tailored type of clinical experience each month to what they're moving into and what they hope to match into. It's um, it's more self-directed, whereas in third year, we help them, we place them, we find preceptors. We know that they're going to rotate through all of the core specialties in third year to get that foundational mm-hmm. exposure. What should they really be doing during their third and fourth year to prepare for residency training? No matter what specialty they're interested in, every specialty can teach you something in terms of being a great physician. Are there certain things you think they need to key in on? Well, yes, and uh, it's not just me. It's really, you know, all of the med- medical educators, you know, come together and they've formulated a list of what's called entrustable professional activities. And that's a way to almost standardize what we hope students will get out of their clinical years. And they are things like be able to do a com- or take a complete history, be able to conduct a physical examination, be able to write a note or record, you know, that history and physical, be able to orally present a patient or a case to your peers so that you know how to call a consult in or you know how to communicate with other physicians. Learn how to write a procedure note so that you can document procedures. Um, There's about 13 of them, and I could go through them all, but they're like a basic list of foundational skills. And so I think if students can look at that list and really try to be very good at each one of those, then moving into residency, um, they use what's called milestones. And they're a little bit different because the expectation is higher for residents. But I think as a fourth year student, maybe around the time that you've matched, time to start looking at those milestones because knowing how you're going to be evaluated will help you know how to prepare and brush up on any deficiencies or relative deficiencies you might have so that when you get to residency and you know how they're going to be evaluating you, you actually have a very good idea of how you're expected to perform and what you're expected to know and how you'll be taught. Mm-hmm. During those last two years of medical school training, I know they're off campus. They're rotating in clinics and hospitals. Who should a medical student reach out to for support, mentorship during those last two years? So uh, also an interesting question with respect to anything and everything that happens operationally for their third and fourth year. The clinical education staff and myself and at PCOM, um, they might have a different title at different schools, but whoever's involved in clinical education is your first resource. We work for PCOM. We work for those students, and they are our charge. So we are their resource. We are there for them. We're their tether, if you will. Um, so many students feel like once they leave campus that they're completely on their own, and it couldn't be further from the truth. With respect to mentoring, um, many students are assigned a mentor in their first and second year, and they certainly maintain and um, 
continue those relationships with their mentors from their M1 and M2 years. But looking for a clinical mentor is a good thing because I've had students say, this doctor was a good preceptor. They taught me the factual information. But when they talked to me about how to behave in a certain setting or how to navigate a difficult encounter or how to, you know, really present difficult conversations, whether it's a bad news, you know, you have a tumor and we have to do a procedure. It's not just about how to do that procedure note. It's how do I become that compassionate translator for that patient. And so those types of things are where students feel like a preceptor becomes a mentor, where they're teaching them the art of medicine and the art of really interacting with people from that compassionate and humanistic side of things. They also can be mentors in terms of, you know, where do you want to do residency? Um, what do you What are you thinking of doing? If you don't like my specialty, oh, okay, well, I have friends in this arena that I can introduce you to. So it can be academic as well as you know, academic in the standpoint of planning a career you know, in academic programs at, at like residencies or academic in the finer points of the art of medicine. Mm -hmm. I couldn't wait to ask you this question, so I'm excited to make it to this point. If you had to be a first-year medical student all over again and you could leave yourself three sticky notes, mm -hmm. what would they say? Pay attention because details matter. They matter to people's lives. They matter in medicine. Um, that would be my first one. Uh, my second one would be pace yourself. This is a long road and it's exciting, but it's hard work. My third one. That one's always the hardest. It is. You know, those first two came to me pretty quickly. I would say to always remember that there's a person in that bed or on that exam table and treat them like they were your husband, your father, your mother, your sister, your brother. Just remember that that's a person. It's not the, it's not the sore throat in bed three or the broken leg in room five. Yeah. It's a person with real life real concerns and address their fears. Well, Dr. Golden, thank you so much for spending time with us. Thank you so much for having me. Until next time, everybody. Thank you so much for listening to The White Coat presented by Georgia South Graduate Medical Education. Don't forget to subscribe so you don't miss out on future episodes. And if you enjoyed listening, consider dropping us a five-star rating and sharing the podcast with someone else who would benefit from this content. From all of us at Georgia South, we look forward to helping you in your journey to the white coat.